everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reading Party Podcast with Megan and Lexi. This episode continues our season looking at modern retellings of the Iliad and the Odyssey, ancient epics known for both brutal violence and instances of sexual assault. This episode is not suitable for under-18s. We hope you have your favourite beverage and snack ready to go, because we've got our teas and are ready to start spilling the tea on our latest ancient story. This week, Lexi and I will be discussing the first half of the novel Circe by Madeleine Miller. First published in 2018, this fantastic book investigates the character of Circe and uncovers a whole load of mythological backstory along the way. I hope you enjoy. I love your recaps, so I'm going to ask you to give us your snappy recap. I really enjoyed this book. I've read it once before and just enjoyed it. I like Circe just from the Odyssey anyway so i was really excited when i saw that there's a novelization of her life so we stopped just before chapter 14 started so that takes you from the story of how cersei's parents got together and her birth all the way through till she's been exiled to an island and and her brother Aetes has come to find medea and he's yelled at her a bunch for not keeping medea it's really interesting i feel like this is a lot of mythological backstory for so many people right you get the birth of the minotaur you get the creation of scylla and you get daedalus and icarus and all that kind of thing and then you get obviously how cersei comes to be marooned on this island she's such a powerful figure how on earth did she get there so the whole thing is uh a prequel essentially to or at least this half of the book is a prequel to Odysseus arriving on the island and it's beautifully written Circe as a character is very sympathetic it's really poignant I think really really poignant because she's surrounded by all of these people all her titan family and the few mortals she does come into contact with, she's surrounded by people who really are very ambivalent. Well, not even ambivalent about her existence. They just don't want her to be there. Her parents are completely disinterested in her. Her siblings actively torment her. The one sibling, 80s, that she feels like she has some kind of connection with because she raises him, later in the book, turns out to be just a dick. His father takes him to Caucasus and Cersei says, well, take me with you. And he essentially says, no, you're not worth it. And it's really crushing as a reader because she's been told over and over and over again by her uncles, her aunts, her grandparents, it, literally everyone she's ever come into contact with that she's not worth anything. And this is the one person that you feel values her and that she feels some kind of emotional connection to. And it, it turns out actually, no, no, he's just, he's playing her because she's, she's useful and it's convenient. So it's quite hard reading because all of the interpersonal relationships are unpleasant, except Daedalus, but that's just like the briefest blip of enjoyable human interaction. And it all ends tragically, right? So she falls in love with this human really early on and turns him into a god. And then he essentially is like, 
sorry, I can have my pick of whichever naiad I want to marry now, and leaves her. And she's like, well, what? No, mm-hmm, no. And then her brother is like, no, you're not worth anything. I have no familial feeling for you. And then Daedalus is a genuinely nice, kind person who is trapped by her sister, Pasfe. And they have this like brief fling and it's really lovely and delightful. And you obviously know that this small child that she describes running around is going to die because he's Icarus and that's kind of what he does. And then after she sails away from Crete, she kind of recounts what happens to Daedalus and to Icarus. And you're like, oh, oh, every single positive relationship this woman has, has either ended with the person in question being borderline abusive or just straight up dying tragically while he tries to escape her evil sis. I'm like, Jesus, God. It, do- it doesn't pull any punches. It's beautifully written. It's the-, the characters are wonderfully drawn, but it is brutal. Which, having read Song of Achilles earlier in the podcast, it- I mean, it makes sense. It really makes sense. And if you have read Song of Achilles and not read Circe, go and read Circe, because I feel like all of the gods share Thetis massive disdain for humanity. And I know that was a theme that that kept coming up when we were talking about Song of Achilles. It's completely echoed in Circe. Like they all are like, what? They're worms crawling upon the face of the earth. We have no interest in them. Except Circe, who's like, these are really interesting people. And actually I quite like them. And why are you all being so dismissive and rude and and mean? And and yeah, I enjoy it. I enjoy it very much. That was very rambly. Lexi, what are your thoughts? Well, let me tell you what I think. I am the half of us who has not read this before. So I was, you know, coming into it for the first time and it was quite interesting. Actually, I have to say I started reading and I was, well, listening and I was really, really confused because I guess I wasn't familiar with this backstory at all. I mean, obviously, I know a lot of what's described, but like Cersei herself, I was like, oh, I don't, you know, it had been so long. But also, I was like, this seems like Calypso's story. So I had to like actually Google and be like, am I going crazy? Because their storylines are very similar. A lot of times they're conflated as the same person by modern audiences and so i was like no no no. okay like so technically there are different people in mythology but we as humans have conflated them so ergo they're like the same because i was like cersei was the mean witch who just turns people to pigs and traps odysseus but i was also like i'm pretty sure that he did end up on oyea and i was like but she was the good one who didn't turn his men. She just fell in love with him and then had the whole doomed romance curse. So it was quite eye-opening to see that it is exactly like the same story of her banishment and the mistreatment and stuff, but it's not Calypso, it's Cersei. So I was like, oh, okay. So that one threw me for a hook. So once I got past my initial shock of what the hell am I reading, I really did enjoy it. I think, I, I mean, we read up to chapter 14, but I have to say, I don't know about you, I think chapters one and two were my favorite. Like my favorite because they really did a great job of giving the backstory, the background. It sets kind of the tone. Even from the first couple of pages, I mean, here she is growing up. And and what 
is described as like this very dark palace, right? This is like horrid place, like obsidian walls. Because I was like, the minute I read that, I was like, I, I don't want to grow up in a palace of obsidian. Then that that is like the most dark, creepy, nightmare-inducing. And uh, so then I was like, okay, so scarred childhood in place of obsidian walls. Why? And then we're like, oh yes, Helios is like. I love how my light is reflected on these walls. So obviously, I'm going to force everyone who dwells here to just like live in my weird fantasy palace where I look great. And I was like, okay, so she, she has a real selfish daddy. So I, I was like, please, please, please have the mother at least be decent. No, 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 no. no. So I was like, okay, well, that sucks. And then again, like most things in Greek myth, you play around with a bit of mythology or prophecy, right? Where she's destined to marry a mortal. And I was like, okay, so you have another element of fate that someone's going to try to outrun because that always works in Greek mythology. And then even right down to her name, though, which is interesting because, again, different from Calypso, but Circe's name is supposed to mean hawk, which I found interesting. But I also really enjoyed but also hated the fact that she talks about how she's not pretty. She's not a full image of either of her parents. They place a lot of emphasis on how her eyes are wrong. And how her, her voice, essentially, they say, is disgusting. Now, I don't know about you, Megan, but like... I would feel real bad if someone was like, your voice is disgusting. I would stop talking, I think. And they suggest that to her at one point. They're like, just just stop talking. Right? And I was like, okay. I mean, I think, I think technically they don't say disgusting. They say her voice is rough or grating or something like that. But Shrill something, yeah. Right. But she doesn't have a pretty voice. And I was like, okay, that sucks. I don't know. Maybe the voice thing isn't such a big deal. But I, I guess... I noticed it because as someone who's lived all around Europe, I just feel like I've gone around and giving people that weird compliment of, excuse me, I just want to let you know, you have a, such a pretty accent. Your voice is so nice to listen to. Don't stop talking. As somebody who gives this compliment, to be told your voice is essentially disgusting would be like devastating to me. Anyway, yeah, I really actually enjoyed how she, despite her father kind of not caring and being terrible, it was quite interesting how she ended up being kind of a daddy's girl. That was really unexpected. And this little trip that they take to see his white cattle, the way that even though she has this miserable childhood, she describes like, I love to lie at my father's feet. I am so honored. I get to fly with him in the chariot of the sun. I did enjoy how I was able to read and pull some kernels of happiness despite her very rough upbringing. I think it, it does a really good job of describing what is essentially an emotionally abusive household. And I'm not a psychologist in any sense of the word, but the feeling I get is that children growing up in those kinds of circumstances kind of latch on to any kind of positive attention and they do everything they can to please a parent. And that's exactly what you see happening with Cersei. She's just doing everything she can to not make a fuss, not be a bother, just to get someone's approval somehow because she doesn't have 
the physical appearance that her siblings do that any of her family does and she's told time and time again you are a disappointment because in the society in the world she is born into it's very obvious and it's made very explicit as you're reading the book that actually the only value a female child brings is in a good marriage and that's the first thing that her mother asks her father who's she going to be married to and he said oh well probably a prince and her mom's really pissed off she's like a prince a mortal i don't think so and he's like actually yes she's not attractive enough to marry a god sorry just not going to happen all of the divine characters are described in this really heavily visual way all of the children of helios are like golden and gleaming and they have hair like like rivers of gold and and they're all beautiful and then there's circe who you kind of find out later actually looks a lot more like a mortal than anyone else in her family and hermes tells her she has the voice of a mortal which is why everyone hates it so much because she doesn't sound she doesn't look right she doesn't fit in it was really interesting watching that family dynamic play out and then right at the end of the section we read you kind of get from her sister from pasiphae you get this diatribe almost against Cersei and against how she's been behaving her entire life she's like you kind of cowered at our father's feet you do nothing to stand up for yourself you're pitiful and it's kind of a you have power you've always had access to power you just never had the bravery really to try and find it and to use it and it's really interesting seeing how Cersei is trying her best just to survive and how she's kind of looked down on and ridiculed by her siblings for being this kind of quiet submissive character but it was so unfair because I think the thing that struck me about that diatribe against her about how yeah but you are powerful but really I mean it's not because if you're looking at kind of the subliminal messages that it are are set up even like within her own family dynamic it sets up right in the beginning with her mother because i feel like her mom was using she was using beauty and sex to educate her daughter i feel because like she was demonstrating to the rest of her family that the only way that a woman essentially could like acute like get power and then maintain it was basically through like sex and childbearing and stuff you see it in the power dynamic between her parents because she was like yes this is my seduction tool because you obviously want me oh but wait i will not bear children unless you marry me kind of thing and then you see that kind of power taken away right later because the gods forbid her from having more than her four children and then being forbidden from having children strips her of whatever leverage she feels she has so then she goes back to actually not even having power as someone who's considered pretty and desirable so the fact that like hearing this or that i was listening to this diatribe and i'm like but that's not fair because her mom just told her that sex is how you get stuff and then you have someone who was told in this world where she thinks it's the only way to get stuff that like she's ugly and no one wants her yes she had power okay she has like magic and whatever and people are like oh i'm discovering you're useful but i don't know like i guess 
it's true. Like, if I was going to analyze it, I'd be like, okay, you're right. She has power. She's been powerful. She's not like this helpless little thing. Maybe as a kid, but like who she grew into, especially after her banishment, she was powerful. But you can have all the power in the world. But if you don't realize that's the kind of power you can use to get ahead, but it's like everyone else who doesn't understand that if you're coming from a place where you only understand there's one type of power i'm like i'm sorry there's no way that she would know she's powerful i i don't know that's just me if i was like sitting in her position no absolutely i don't think anything that pacifist says is fair in any way shape or form because she's grown up with this beauty and this value and she's married off to the king of crete and it's only then that she kind of discovers her own power. So for people who haven't read it, the four children are Perseus, Pasiphae, Circe, and Aetes, and they're all magical, but like witchcraft magic as opposed to inborn divine magic, which was interesting because that wasn't a characteristic or a division that I'd necessarily thought of myself before reading the book. But only those four have it, and they all have the same parents. So once Zeus finds out, he's like, okay, you you two are not having more children because your children have these scary powers that I don't understand and I can't control, and I don't want, essentially, to be overthrown. But Pasiphae doesn't discover this until after she leaves home. So I think lambasting Circe for not exercising her own power or exercising her own like will almost is, well, I mean, Pasiphae isn't a sympathetic character to begin with anyway, none of them are. So that's possibly unsurprising. But something that did just occur to me, and again, going back to Song of Achilles and Thetis and how I think dismissive Thetis is of humanity in general. If you look at all of the gods and the Titans in the first, like the, the first half of Circe, Everyone is like that, both towards mortals, but also to, towards their own kind. There's no softness, there's no trust, there's no, like, what I'd call true friendship. Because you see it with Scylla, Circe turns her, and she's a beautiful sea nymph, and then Circe turns her into the monster that we all know and are terrified of from the Odyssey. And everyone who had been admiring of her because she was beautiful and because she was going to like marry the best sea god or whatever, the instant she falls from grace, even the people, even the guy who was planning on marrying her is like, ha, ha, she's like no value and everyone's laughing. And it's a really hard, unpleasant place with very little warm feeling at all. So Thetis and her dismissive feelings towards humanity. I think when we read it, we were like, oh, this is kind of a little bit tropey, like gods despising humanity. The thing is, in Circe, they despise everyone. You only get some level of respect by being more powerful. So Circe is despised because she is the least powerful in her family. And the mortals are even further below her. So it's like a hierarchy of despisement. I don't think despisement is a word. Let's make it a word. <laughs> I think it's interesting because if you were to only read Song of Achilles and only see Madeline Miller's interpretation of the gods there, without reading this one, I would say, no, it just kind of falls into that gods hating humans trope. But 
this is kind of a helpful thing to really more establish like it's not a one-off it's not a trope this is how she's choosing to portray all the gods with this really deep disdain and you know the more i read and think about it the more it makes sense because the gods have always been described as very selfish out for themselves and when you're an immortal powerful being with all these superpowers essentially I was trying to think about like, okay, well, let's just say if I was a god or a goddess for a moment and I was stuck living with the same people for eternity who are all terrible people, how would I feel? And I was like, actually, yeah, it's one giant pissing contest, right? Because they're not going really- away. You're stuck together forever and they all have powers that are different. And if everyone is horrible trying to use their own power to get ahead, it would really make a, like Mount Olympus and the other realms like a complete wolf's den, a shark tank, right? Where you're like, well, I want mortals to fear me or I want this person to respect me. So the only thing I can do to get that respect is be terrible, do something and then flaunt my power and try to make someone else seem weaker than I am to survive so actually i'm kind of like it's almost tragic right it's pretty miserable like when you think about it because i'm just like it would be a very lonely place it was reading it it was really anxiety inducing it it just feels like it'd be a really lonely place to be like a really lonely existence i think we just we have this idea this romanticized idea of kind of like oh wouldn't it be great to be an immortal god or goddess but it actually sounds quite lonely even even from the other side, right? When people say, well, would you like to be immortal? And I feel like the normal answer is no, because then I'd have to watch all my loved ones die. And then I'd have to keep doing that for eternity. And I couldn't keep anyone. And I'm like, yeah, that is depressing and a good reason not to be a god. But the other reason that no one thinks about that, I guess this is teaching me to think about is if I was stuck with whoever I was stuck with and if I didn't like them and it was always like a never ending competition, that would just be insufferable. I would probably grow to be quite bitter and be like i hate you and i'm stuck with you for eternity go away and it's like they can't even get away from each other they're all on olympus it kind of felt like a relief when she was banished i felt like she was relieved but personally as a reader i was very relieved but didn't she say it was like a golden or daedalus said it was like a Yes, a golden cage is still a cage, but she was like, but it's my golden paradise because I can do anything and everything. The passage of time here is really interesting. She makes the comments really early on that she didn't know how long, how many days she was in in her father's halls because she hadn't yet learned to measure time like mortals do. So you don't really have a sense of how long anything takes. So she's banished to the island after admitting to transforming Scylla. And, and essentially harming one of her own kind. And there's this sense of kind of anxiety and concern because she's never been by herself before. But then it it quite quickly turns to freedom and relief and, oh, I can sing now because no one's going to criticize my voice. I can walk where I want. I can do what I want. No one's watching me. No one's going to be like whispering mean things about me as I pass them in the halls. But then her sister sends a ship because she's she's pregnant with the minotaur we all know how that one goes and she needs her sister to come and essentially help magically manage the whole thing and it's not until after she gets back after Cersei gets back from Crete that Daedalus words kind of come back to her and she's like it is a golden prison and it 
it feels, I think, because she's been out of her home, like she's been cast out of her father's home. She's had the opportunity to go away from her new home and explore a little bit and like meet some more people and see that actually there is this big world out there and there are some mortals which are kind of nice. And then she's back and she knows that she can't leave. And this one island is where she will be for the rest of eternity. And that kind of seems to settle on her finally. I don't think, I didn't at least have a sense that she really understood that until after she came back from Creed. I would agree. I was curious when she finally meets the Olympians, the younger gods, and she finally sees mortals. What did you make of her reaction to that? Were you shocked? Were you like, no, this this tracks? Or were you just like, mm. it? I think kind of like this tracks. She'd been, I think, hoping for something different with the mortals because she'd not seen them and she was kind of building them up in her mind to be this like, strange, exotic group of people. And then she sees them and they're just kind of dark and dull and quiet. And it's like she can see them aging before her eyes. And especially because all she's seen are, are titans and they're beautiful and radiant and they don't age. And then she sees the Olympians and they're also beautiful and powerful and clearly don't age. And then there's this group of very dull, uninspiring looking people. But what I did like was the contrast between her first experience and then a later when she's on the boat with Daedalus going to Crete and she compares her like how she sees the men rowing and and it's kind of it's like she sees them as individuals now before they were just this homogenous group of boring non-shiny people and now actually that she's up close and personal and she can see them properly and like talk to them they're different somehow they're better she had thought yeah i found it quite sad because i mean she had built up humans but i remember i i because i kind of enjoyed her reaction to when she finds out that prometheus got his punishment for stealing fire for humans and i remember her thinking oh okay what a sacrifice okay i, I guess if you just hear this story you'd probably think well they must be worth there's got to be something special right because like that's a hell of a punishment to risk from zeus i just i thought the reaction was so interesting because then by the time she's like they're kind of unimpressive and terrible then she was like yeah that sacrifice that was so noble yeah and it's dull it's her it's like why would you do that and i was like oh 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 gosh okay that one was kind of that threw me for a bit of a loop. I wanted to ask you, we mentioned there are several cameos throughout the story. You've got Scylla, you've got the Minotaur and Pasiphae, you've got Medea makes a passing appearance. That was cool. I enjoyed that one. But I was wondering, did you have a, like a favorite cameo from other mythologies? Mm, that's hard because there's so many. I mean, I've always had a soft spot for Daedalus because I've always liked the stories of the labyrinth and I find, you know, obviously what happens with Daedalus and Perdix and, you know, everything super tragic. I'll go with something a little different because my answer is always usually if it has something to do with, you know, labyrinth and stuff. Okay. I will say I really liked hearing the backstory of Scylla. It's not one that I would say I'm, I, I hear a lot or am familiar with a lot. 
because usually she's just introduced as this big monster kind of on her rock with Charybdis right next to her and they're the terrors but you don't really hear why or how so it yeah it was kind of fun to hear her backstory and then be like oh well that sucks a lot I'm sorry I just enjoy them all okay it's really hard to just pick one or two so do you have a favorite I actually did enjoy seeing Medea and Jason that was interesting and the way it's done is really clever because there's this ship that washes up on the shore of her island and there's a woman who's like shrouded in in a cloak and keeps her head down and you're like "Hmm, who is this lady and they've got this miasma around them and they need purification and "Hmm, interesting this is significant it's not Odysseus clearly so who is it and Cersei purifies them and then you find out it's Medea and Jason her niece escaping from her brother who turns out to be a misogynistic individual in very much in line with with her father and grandfather and all all that kind of thing and Medea comes off when Jason is conscious as a very softly spoken shy retiring princess and very happy to let her her now husband take the lead in all things and then she drugs him essentially and speaks to Cersei as herself rather than this front that she puts forward to try and exist in a man's world and is not as bad as the rest of Cersei's family but very much powerful and scary and out for herself and looking down on her aunt for weakness which is is a characteristic of the entire book is Cersei's kindness always being interpreted as weakness and her affection for mortals is weakness and just everything good about her is a weakness that is to be despised by her entire family so seeing Medea and it's not terribly surprising, right? Because she's raised by Aetes, who is not a sympathetic, kind individual. But seeing her it kind of code switch almost from from like nice, pliable princess to terrifying witch in her own right, and knowing in my mind what happens when she gets where she's going with Jason and seeing Cersei try and warn her, okay, this is not going to turn out how you think it is. Stay here with me. And and Medea's like, fuck you. I'm not going to stay here and like be your surrogate child and stay with this miserable old crone of a woman. And you just think, well, good luck to you. It's not going to end the way that you think it is. And, and maybe you should consider listening to the aunt that has, you know, some level of prophecy because all of Helios kids do like she's not just telling you a hunch it's it's something a little bit stronger than a hunch so maybe maybe listen but no she she goes off with Jason I really liked the whole thing seeing these origin stories it's obviously the origin story of Cersei but it's also showing the origin stories of so many other things no I do really like the origin story. it's funny because she does have her little like Cassandra moment Maybe you should not. No, no, no. I don't believe. Goodbye. You know, and you're like, oh, well then. Okay. No, I wanted to ask, what did you think about her whole relationship once she is banished that develops with Hermes? That was a little bit of a surprise. 
and I like that for her. It's something light and fun, and she knows that there's no romance there, and she's not looking for that. But it's contact with someone who doesn't humiliate and deride her at every single opportunity. She's sure that he does it behind her back and laughs about her with all of the other gods and titans, but it's a comfortable relationship that she can enjoy on the very surface level because she it, like it, it's not going to go any deeper she's not expecting it to she doesn't want it to yeah it threw me for a bit of a loop because you know the only relationship between them that i was really aware of before i read this was uh, he was the one i figured who brought the heroes to her but then obviously they couldn't stay for whatever reason then they would have to leave um but yeah i really thought it was more like uh i'm just fulfilling the bad part of your banishment which is bringing you things you cannot keep i really didn't dig into anything deeper than that i figured that they just had like a standard god and less powerful god relationship he asks her at one point will you bear me children and she's like no <laughs> not not even a little bit my dude and the fact that he was like that she even says like oh yes and he loves it he loves it when i tell him no he just wants to ask me anyway what kind of like a weird ass relationship is this will you bear my children no okay love it you know i'm like what that was that was something else but also really they went to so much trouble describing her as like ugly and no one wanted her so the fact that like hermes is a beautiful olympian and he's desirable goes for the the one that we called undesirable i mean so then i was like so do the gods have something about it really does show that they have no standards because they will sleep with anyone who's not considered desirable just because hey that's what they felt on tuesday like you know what so that's i had i had questions <laughs> a lot of questions that i would like to ask about this yeah it was it was interesting definitely an interesting choice to make that happen and i think with with hermes i think the law for him to cersei is that she's not in awe of him like all of the mortals are obviously he can have anyone he wants but she doesn't really want him he's convenient and he's useful because he's there and she's a bit lonely but she's not like some love-struck mortal pining after his amazing beauty it's like yeah fuck you i'm not gonna have your kids <laughs> he would probably know right like if they had kids would they be beautiful you know godly genes are weird because you can have like two beautiful gods with a horrible child but you can also have gods who are like not considered very attractive and then they have like a beautiful child so you know what godly genetics i don't fuck with that that's a whole can of worms you know although there is that quite concerning pattern right where most of the sons of zeus by mortals are actually kind of beautiful it is an unfortunate reality and then you have I things know. like the minotaur which again is possibly not surprising given that it was fathered by a bull but that whole episode in the story was about as traumatic as I would expect the story of the like mm -hmm. the beginning of the story of the Minotaur to be. 
Cersei's there helping with the delivery and it eats two of her fingers while essentially still in the womb. You're like, oh my god. Okay, we are not yeah. pulling any punches with describing monstrous beings. I see. Good. Yes. Well. Mm. Yeah. Pretty. Ugh. I thought it was quite interesting how her sisters, after a lifetime of making fun of her, the fact that Pacifay's like, sister, would you come hither? And she's like, what? She, what? She doesn't love me. Why would she want me there? And then the whole, I think it was Daedalus, right? Who was kind of like, well, I can't tell you more. But she says, come on, come quick. Oh, but also you have to go the path that leads you in front of Scylla. And she's like, of course, there's strings attached. My this sister tracks. would never call me just because she wants me. And here's proof. And you're like, hmm. Yeah. So she's kind of horrible. They all are. They all are. Now, this is a relatively short book, so I don't have a huge amount left that i wanted to talk about yeah i was gonna say actually it's been going pretty quickly but we're basically caught up I, again i don't have the physical book so i don't know how big it looks but i only have the audiobook version but i was also like it definitely seems like it's short it's short but it's just very well written and very interesting to read it is 333 pages wow no that is short. i mean compared to some of the others we've read that were like oh yeah this feels like a sprint almost because it's so short but it draws you in so you're kind of like oh i could easily blast through this i will say that the audiobook does kind of transform the experience because it's read by a woman with like the most dulcet British accent. I feel like it's it's becoming a trend. Like all the all the audiobook narrators are all British and they all have kind of soft tones. But I swear, this one hearing this read to me makes it even sadder. Because the way she reads it in her like dulcet, weepy British voice, like it makes the sad part sadder. I think that's a problem I'd have with with audiobooks. If a, a section of a book is like upsetting or anxiety inducing, I can just speed up and read it faster. But you can't do that with an audiobook. You just have to sit there and wait for the story to move on. I mean, I think there is a setting where I can press like times two where it like speeds it up a little bit but you do have to kind of just take the punches but like it's still pleasant enough of a voice to listen to but when it's sad it makes me like want to cry but then also it's weird because we've we've been told repeatedly that this character has like a disgusting voice and i'm just like yeah but the person reading her has like a beautiful lovely voice and she could read me the dictionary and i would be like read me more so it doesn't track that she has an ugly voice because here she is being narrated with like the most yeah it was like the most lovely voice so i will say again for all you book versus audiobook people it does make a difference in how you receive the material i don't know when i became such a big audiobook person but i i guess i'm determined to experience as much as i can through the audiobooks i'm not going to answer this because obviously i've read it but i wanted to ask you how you think the relationship between odysseus and circe is going to play out in the second half of the book oh i don't know so like based on the character we have i mean like when she has found a mortal that she likes kind of like Daedalus. I'm like, no, she's like, hey, you're kind of okay. I'm I'm also like, this is a hard one just because, because I'm so used to this type of story being played out by Calypso and I'm not 
as familiar and the Cersei I know is just like the evil witch. I don't know. I'm having trouble reconciling because I'd imagine, right, that she's going to slip in the you have to turn his men into pigs because that's what Cersei did. I don't know how I would reconcile if she's going to do some evil trick like that, but also then play the Calypso-ish role of the you're arriving injured and now I'm going to heal you and then make you love me and stay. Turning his men into pigs does not fit into that lovely, lovely future. So I'm curious to see what she does to try to weave in those elements or maybe she'll just leave it out and leave all traditional Cersei elements out and then just go with the Calypso storyline. That's the thing. The curse was like, she will come and even though she won't like everyone immediately, she's going to be doomed to fall in love with them. So I'm sure that even if he comes, she's probably going to be like, oh, you're kind of an asshole. But then something's going to happen and then he's going to do something great or or it's just like the amount of time and then she's going to somehow come to be like, oh, no, wait. Actually, you're attractive to me. I don't know. And then if I'm going off of mythology, either he's going to just wake up one day and be like, actually, wife, home, or Hermes is going to come and be like, you know, you got to let him go. got to let him go. He's got a destiny. I know at the wedding in Crete, she was looking for Athena because she really wanted to meet her and didn't see her. So I'm like, well, he is a beloved hero of Athena. So who knows? Maybe Athena is going to like pop in and be like, hello, let my hero go. Blah, blah, blah. I have no idea. I'm really excited to see, though. And I'm really excited to keep having this woman read to me. Oh, baby. It's awesome. I enjoy the end of this book, so. Okay, you're going to hype it up, and I'm going to be like, oh my god, what, what, what? So. I'm excited um, to talk about it. I'm excited to talk about it, too. Yay! <laughs> we should leave it there and be back next week to keep going with Cersei. I hope everyone's following along with us. I hope you're enjoying this book. And if you sped through and couldn't resist and had to finish the book and didn't want to stop where we did. I guess you'll just have to wait to hear from us next week. All right. See you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review. And you can also follow us on social media at the Reading Party Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a book or movie suggestion, then email us at thereadingpartypod at gmail.com. See you next week. Mm -hmm.